We're going to look to continue looking at this story of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, it's on page 6, <coughs> if you're struggling to find it, in the Pew Bible. I'm going to read verses 4 to 9, remember we started looking at it last week. Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 to 9 on page 6 of the Pew Bible. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Aram. And Abraham took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. He pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And so Abraham journeyed going on still towards the south. I'm sure the Lord will add his blessing uh, to that portion of his truth. Now if you remember, as I said, we started looking at the life of faith that is exhibited for us in the experience of Abraham. I said last week that he was called the father of the faithful and therefore to us he becomes our example. Someone that we must endeavour to follow. He gives us insights into what living by faith is all about. You know, so many people uh, uh, jump up in pulpits and say, I'm living by faith. Uh, but we're all living by faith. Every one of us uh, are, are living the life of faith, just as Abraham did, and millions of people speak, uh, since him, and perhaps there'll be millions of people after us. We don't know. But uh, we all, because we put our trust in someone we can't see, we've never heard, we can't touch or feel as we saw last Thursday night, we are living by faith. And Abraham is a great example for us to follow. Many lessons come to us through the story that is told of him in uh, the scriptures. Now we saw uh, that the step of faith that God and I, I used the word uh, commands last week and then put in brackets asks. You know, because God is not a, a forceful person. He commands and yet in that command there is a, a request, a, an asking. And therefore, of course, our uh, ability to say no is always prevalent, is always there. The option to say no is always there. And we used uh, Jonah as an example of, of someone who would... Um, say no to God but when you think about some of the commands or the requests that God makes it, they defy logic you know they, they go beyond what we would expect they go beyond what we would think is the best way to go about it we, anyway, and to us what God asks has no wisdom about it sometimes no understanding you know, and yet we are told in Isaiah chapter 55 that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. You know, and therefore sometimes it's not only sin and it's not only disobedience that causes us 
to hesitate when it comes to the call. You know, when we, when we know that the Lord has spoken to us and we think, no, that's, that's stupid. That's silly. Surely that's not what God would want me to do in this situation. That's not what God would want me to say uh, in this situation. It defies all logic. You know, and there is this little problem that we have called common sense. You know, we have been given uh, an element, most of us, of common sense. You know, and sometimes the call of God goes against even our own common sense. You know, here with Abraham, the call on Abraham's life cuts straight across common sense. Here is a man who was in the safety of a city. You know, out there, as I said last week, there were robbers, there were problems, there was animals and everything that could um, sort of destroy you. You want to be in the city. Uh, was the most commonsensical thing to do. And yet God's call cut straight across uh, Abraham's understanding and his own will and challenged his own natural leanings. You know, and therefore, very often as Christians, when God calls us into a specific thing for him, we often need a sword to cut through the natural, our natural, in order for our spiritual uh, to emerge. Now we are told in me the word that it's like a two-edged sword. But it cuts both ways. You know, and uh, I suppose sometimes, even for us as born-again Christians, the next move or the next step that he would have us to take, something has to go. Something has to die. Something has to be cut away in order for us to pro- progress in the things of God. You know what, remember the, the story of, or the word of Simeon to Mary. You remember what, what he said to her when he blessed her and blessed the, uh, the little baby. And she says, then Simon or Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. You know, that's a great uh, sort of thing to, to be told about your son that he's going to affect the world. He's going to do something amazing. He's going to raise people up. He's going to do uh, great things uh, under God. And then the next part says, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, always remember that Mary was a natural mother. And the bond between her and Jesus was a natural bond. She was the mother, he was the son. And naturally, she would have held on to her son, protecting him from the the wars and the the difficulties and the problems and the violence of the world. That would be her natural thing to do. You know, there's no way in the world that she would allow anyone to come and touch him. She would cosset him and uh, protect him. You know, and... uh, But... Of course, a sword pierced her soul. She had to leave him go. She had to leave him go out into the world. She had to stand back and look at people abusing him. She had to stand back and look at people trying to stone him, blaspheme him. And then last of all, of course, she witnessed the consequence of that prophecy from Simeon as he, before her very eyes, hung suspended on a Roman cross. A sword will pass through your soul also. You know, the natural has to be cut away in order for the spiritual to emerge. You know, I also remember the the stern uh, remark 
of Jesus when uh, when Peter having had a great revelation from God you know when Jesus was amazed when G- Peter said you were the Christ the son of the living God and immediately Jesus said that this revelation has come to you not from man you haven't worked it up or thought it up or studied it up you have had this straight from God you are, you are a vessel of God's blessing you know and then having said that when Jesus started speaking of the crucifixion Jesus changed his tune and not didn't call him a vessel of God's revelation anymore but he said get behind me Satan for you are an offense to me <coughs> from one minute you're up there and the next minute you're lower than the low but listen to what he says you are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God but the things of men you are not mindful of the spiritual you were mindful of the physical and so often in our lives as uh, the call of God would come upon us it's the physical that has to die it's the physical that has to be cut away and so very often the sword will come and sever Peter from his natural feelings from his natural desires so that he would uh, come into um, the fullness of the spirit as he would preach the gospel to others you know would you call the natural feelings of a mother wrong of course you wouldn't you know there are many mothers in this place this morning you want know, every one of them would have the natural feeling of protection to their offspring it's not wrong at all it's not wrong would you call the natural feeling of a friend's protection wrong you know was peter wrong to say don't go to the cross don't talk of the cross you know naturally no he wasn't wrong because every one of us would have wanted to protect our friend from the things that he was talking about it's not wrong but natural feelings when they hinder god's will in your life have to go they have to die they have to be cut away you know and when paul in romans chapter 12 he tells us not to be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind now automatically you know what you think when you read that passage of scripture when you read that sentence but automatically i assume that he is referring to the bad things in the world the sinful things the anti-christian things don't be conformed to lies don't be conformed to uh, to theft don't be conformed to uh, gossip don't be conformed to adultery No I don't you know when I think that no we're not going to be conformed to that type of stuff we're going to be transformed in the renewing of our minds but you see Paul isn't only talking about bad things he's not only talking about sinful things he's not only talking about anti-christian things he's talking about natural things natural because more uh more often than not it is the natural things the natural desires that need to be put to death in order to know and do the will of God. You know, and if you go back to that verse in John in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in order that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so, it's in the carrying out of God's commands that we come to understand is perfect will. Jesus tells us in John in John's gospel if anyone wills to do his will he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God 
or whether I speak on my own authority. How do we know it's right? How do we know it's true? You know what I said last week? We can debate with God. All we want to, we can uh, we can seek advice from other people. All we want to, we can sit down and dig our heels in. All we want to, we will never be able to prove the, the good and acceptable will of God until we actually do it. Isn't that awful? Isn't that awful? Surely God has got to give us some kind of hint. Surely God has got to give us some kind of explanation why he would want us to do such a thing. Why he would want us to go to such a place or say such a thing. Why, Lord? Why? And you can debate with him all you want to, but you will never ever come up with a satisfactory answer. Because with God, he's different. He's different to you. He's different to me. You know, if I want somebody to do something and they say, why? I'll sit down and say, well, look, if we do it this way, we'll get this, 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 and this. You know, the person that you've asked will either say, well, I don't, I don't think it's right, but I'm going to go with you. Or I don't think it's right, you do it yourself. Or they might just say, well, that's a good idea. That's a great idea. And we'll go for it. But God is like that. And you notice, that when he came to Abraham, he didn't say, such and such and such and such and such and such. And Abraham thought, well, seems a good idea to me. No, he says, get out. Get out and go. You know, you can imagine Abraham thinking, why get out? Why go? Where go? Because these are the questions that all of us would ask. Because we have to be in control. We are that type of people, we have to be in control. And we need the answer before we're going to step out in faith. But God says no. Step out in faith. And then you know the answer. It's a different ball game when you're, when you're a Christian. It's a different ball game altogether. And therefore, it brings me to, or us to, the concession that Abraham's faith involved. The concession. No one, uh, the concession of faith always has to be the case. Abraham departed. You know, we saw last week that little phrase, not knowing whither he was going. Not knowing where he was going, not knowing why he was going. He made a concession to God. And that's what faith is about. It's making a concession to God. That is, he went with God on this one. I'm going to go with God on this one. You wonder if any of us have uh, received something from God and uh, another call uh, and uh, a direction to take. And we thought, no, I'm not going to go with God on this one. I'm going to use my own intellect. I'm going to think this through. I'm going to make sure. I'm going to get all the, all the sort of details sorted out. Then I go with God. But Abraham said, no, I don't understand. I don't know where. I don't know why. I don't know how. And I don't know what will happen to me. But one thing I know, I've heard from God. And I'm going to make a concession. I'm going to be with God on this one. You see, we often, very often talk of the confession of our faith. But Abraham here tells us of the concession of our faith. Something in us has to give. You know, faith demands the suspension of self and can be very, very painful and costly in some instance, instances. You know, even for the most experienced of us, you might think to yourself that uh, being experienced in God 
I've been a Christian for, uh, for oh, I've been a Christian for 60 years. And you think to yourself, you know, I've, I've cracked it. I've cracked it. But you know that the more mature in the faith you are, the harder a step of faith becomes. Because we tend, as mature Christians, we tend to say, well, we have so much experience to draw on. We've been here, we've done that, we've got the t-shirts and all that type of thing. You know, and um, sometimes, as mature Christians, we may, may assume that we can actually manage without God on this one. Because of our vast experience. You know, I've been a pastor for 30 odd years, or 30 years coming up. And I think to yourself, why do I need God in the running of a church? I've got 30 years experience behind me. Why do I need God to do this? Why do I need... this? You know, I've done it for 30 years. Week in, week out, week in, week out. Surely I could just breeze through the running of a church like this. You know, and that's the, the danger of mature Christians. Thinking that we can do without God on this one. You know, one of our biggest problems, God has given us one of our biggest problems in life. And that is when He created us, he created us to have dominion. You know, right back, way back in the garden and he said, uh, I want man to have dominion over everything. You know, and that hasn't changed. That is in us. It's in us to have dominion. You know, and um, it's a part of our problem because everything we can explain, we can dominate. Everything we can explain, we can overcome. You know, when we look at uh, humanity today and we are amazed you know how the problems that man faces like Ebola, uh, HIV and all these different problems once they can explain it they can overcome it once they can see it they can dominate it you know and that's how we are as humans if we can explain something we can dominate it and therefore we almost always insist on explanations. Abraham, I want you to do this. Yeah, but I, I need an explanation here. I need you to tell me, fill me in with the details, give me every step, every move, every train to catch, every bus to catch. I need to know everything and then I will dominate the situation. And that's how we are. That's humanity. That's what God has programmed into us. In the fall, without the fall, that would have been amazing for us. You know, and it's not telling where we would have got to by now uh, if uh, Adam hadn't sinned. Because we are built to dominate. But of course, in our sinful nature, that is a problem. Because now we need explanations before we go and dominate. You know, and that's why concessions like Abraham made, you know, sort of submitting himself to God, are way, way down the pecking order. For us, that's why the life of faith is such a difficult thing, because we need the answers before we move. But then Jesus comes and says, "If anyone will do, you he shall know. If anyone will do, he shall know. If only God, uh, if God would only do this, explain this, prove this, then life would be so much easier." Let's think about the the children of Israel as they came out of exit of that. Uh, at Exodus, of Egypt in the Exodus. And when they woke up one morning on the beach, they looked out and saw a pathway had been laid 
through the sea. <coughs> it didn't take an awful lot of faith to walk along the pathway. Plus a little bit because of the walls of sea water which were that they've never ever seen before and we've never seen either. How could water stand up on its edge like that? But they just walked through a pathway that God had made for them. And that's an amazing thing to happen. They didn't know God at that point or knew very little of him. And therefore God made it easy for him to go. Forty years down the line, they have another swelling torrent to cross. And it's the Jordan. But now he's revealed himself over 40 years. He's shown them who he is. He's shown them what he can do. He's shown them the things that he can perform. He's already opened up the sea. He's already fed them every day. He's already saved them from their enemies. He's already done amazing things among them. And here they are. At the edge of the, of the Jordan. Needing to go over it. Now what are they going to do? Well the older ones will think. Well if we are on a bit. The Lord is going to make a pathway through this. But that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. You see that's not faith. That's not faith. That's logic. When you see dry land going through the, through the sea, walk on it. It's logic. It's natural. We would all do that with no problem at all. But you see, when they came to the Jordan, 40 years after the Red Sea, they had to put their foot in the water first. In other words, they had to go not knowing whither they went. You know, there was, uh, with and Joshua's faith, made a concession. Yes, we're going to put our foot in. I don't know if it was Joshua who actually did it. Uh, but we are going to put our foot in. Poof. Go on, go on, priests. Show us how to do it. And off they went through the sea and the sea dry, the river dried up, of course. They made a concession. You know, and with Abraham, he made a concession. And if you notice, there's no hesitation. God called, he went. He interpreted a little bit, mind. He did put his own slant on it when he was called uh, but I suppose we could look at Christ and think yes well he is the only one who didn't hesitate and didn't interpret when God said he went <coughs> no but these but uh, Abraham our example um, is, is the one who has taken this or made this great concession he went out not knowing where whither he went let me go to verse 5 of our passage this morning and we notice that Abraham had a number of travelling companions. The companions of his faith. You know, and I suppose that when you read it, it is a little disappointing to say the least. And then Abraham took Sarah, his wife, Lot, his brother, his brother's son, all the possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Aaron. I don't know what that means. The people that they had acquired. Uh, in Aaron, whether they were hangers on or whatever, or they were married into the family or whatever, they, he took all these and gathered and departed. Now, if you can remember, the call of God was get out of your country from your kindred. Get out of your country from your kindred. So there was no hesitation, but there was a little bit of interpretation. I got them by you. Hesitation, A. Interpretation D minus minus. You know, in the whole story we know that Abraham first of all took his father. He shouldn't have took his father. He should have gone on his own. 
And his father became ill in Haran. And he had to wait in Haran for his father to die. You know, the progress of uh, Abraham's journey was stunted because he actually took his father. Then, of course, he took his nephew, Lot. You know, we know that further on down the line, the progress of Abraham was stunted because there was division and there was jealousy. You know, it was a big blunder. Having made the concession, expecting others to see the same thing as you. You know, that's the, uh, another big thing about <coughs> faith, is expecting others to see the same thing of you. You know, most of Abraham's problems stem from the fact that he took others with him and expected them to see the same thing as you. You know, we must be very careful who we involve in our call from God. Because when you move out in God, when you do something that is unnatural, you've made a concession, you've listened and obeyed the voice of God, and you've gone out, do you know that you will find discouragement from the strangest of places? You will find opposition from the most unlikely of quarters. Yes, there'll be times when you'll win people over, and they will begin to see what you see. And you know, and that is something special. But always remember, when you receive a call from God, it's personal. It's personal. And you don't need others to come and G you up. You don't need others to come and join you and say, we are on a mission for God. No, it's not like that. It's personal. And Abraham should have listened to God. Yes, take his wife. Of course, they were married. But he should have gone out with her on her own in the will of God and all the problems that he had that stemmed from the fact that he disobeyed in that sense would have gone you know, we need always to understand that our call from God is very personal and our obedience needs to be to the very detail that God gives us otherwise we encounter difficulties and discouragements and our way is stunted our growth is stunted because you haven't been careful about the details now Abraham he made a concession but he took a company because he failed to read the details go out from your country from your kindred to a land that I will show you and who knows how many years it was before he actually got to the place where God wanted him to be. Having stayed in Haran, having had problems in uh, the Jordan Valley with, uh, with Lot, he would have made it so much quicker. You know, and it's important that we, when God calls us, that we don't put our own slant on things and make it that little bit easier and more appealing. God calls us. And he calls us specifically to do things. And last of all, you know, um, we can look how Abraham consecrates his faith. Listen to these words from the scriptures which I read. Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moriah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. 
Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And then he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on, called on the name of the Lord. So Abraham journeyed going on still towards the south. Now in this, this, that short little passage, uh, Abraham erects two altars. Two altars. You know, and worship has got to be the outcome of any walk of faith. You know, God has graciously given. You know, we are here this morning because God has graciously given. He's given himself. As you come on the table, and I know that we've all been amazed at this gift of grace, this gift of justice that we have celebrated this morning, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, given as a grace gift to you and me. That's where our sin was dealt with upon that cruel cross of Calvary. He's given. And when we look at Abraham, he gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. And everyone that he, uh, he calls, he gives, he provides for in all the different ways that are necessary. So he gives and gives. And therefore, Abraham shows us how we respond to the giving of God. And that is, we give everything back. You know, it's a vital principle for us in the life of faith. We deliberately give everything back because we identify with him in all things. Listen to the song that we sing sometimes, uh, Blessed Be Your Name. And the verse says, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back in praise. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back in praise. You know, whenever God has given to you or given to me a blessing, always, always take time to offer it back to him in a deliberate act of praise and worship. You know, because each time we come to this place, it's an expression of the mechanics of such an economy. Now I'm baffled by the economy, I must be honest, because what I thought would be good for it is bad for it, what I thought would be bad for it is good for it. You know, and I suppose the reason why we're baffled because of the economy is because Labour tells us what's good for it, the Conservatives say no that's bad for it, and then the Liberals come up and say something as we read in the bulletin today, how can we trust the people that are telling us about the economy. I'm baffled by it. I thought inflation was good, was bad, but it turns out to be good. I thought interest rates low would be good, but they turn out to be bad. I am going to clue. But I got, an, I got a big clue about the economy of God. When he blesses me, the best thing to do with it is to give it back to him. Is to give it back to him. Don't, don't ever keep a blessing to yourself because it will rot. It will rot. It will be of no good to you at all. You know, I thank God for being brought up in the Bush Mission. Uh, very often I thank God for being brought up in the Bush Mission because there, every week, we have the opportunity to testify of God's goodness and mercy. One on a Thursday night, a number of us used to gather together in, in a Bible study and for the first hour we would listen to or we would uh, worship the Lord with the songs and the readings and then we would listen to a Bible study and then for the next hour we would get up and express our thanks for the blessing 
that God had uh, poured upon us that week. And they, they were brilliant meetings. And that's where I learned how to praise the Lord. That's where I learned how to worship Him and share His blessings with others. Because everyone would go home having been blessed by other people's stories, other people's uh, experiences. You know, and it was, it was that type of meeting where everyone who'd receive from God would give it out back to him in worship and each person around would then be blessed of God by it. You know, and the call of God when he comes and gives you these things and shows you these things, don't keep it to yourself. Bless each other with the blessings of God. That's what he did. He built an altar and gave it all back to him. This is me, Lord. This is me. Thank you for what you've done for me. And here I am, giving myself to you in order for you to do more with me. And then last, lastly, as we look at where Abraham pitched his tent, he pitched his tent between Bethel and I. And when David left uh, our home to go to university, Pauline said to him, on many occasions, pitch your tent by a well, David. Pitch your tent by a well. In other words, find a place of worship. I think it's essential uh, when a Christian goes to university, especially if they're far away and they're not coming home uh, on a regular basis, that they find themselves a place where they can be fed and, uh, and enveloped in the things of God. That's what Pauline's greatest desire for David was. You know, it took a, a couple of months before he sort of settled down into that as a youngster. Uh, but then he found the church that was amazing. And um, we've seen David growing uh, in the Lord ever since. He pitched his tent by a well. Abraham, he pitched his tent between two cities. Bethel on the left and I on the right. Bethel, of course, we know to be the house of God. This is where God's presence was felt with Jacob. You know, this is, it's called the house of God. I, of course, we would refer to as the city of sin. It was the place where Achan uh, um, sort of lost the battle, if you like, for, uh, for Joshua and the children of Israel. So we can sort of refer to these two cities as direct opposite. Here is the, the Lord, here is the world. And where was he? He was plonked right in between the both of them. You know the people in Kidderville could set their watches to my father's worship. They could set their watches to my father's worship. Because my father's worship was the most public that I've ever seen. You know, and he in his life presented the village of Kidderville with a model of a changed life. An example of a true worshipper and the challenge of a man of God. Why? Because he pitched his tent between Bethel and I. Everyone knew my father in Kidderville. He worked in the pit. He'd been, uh, he'd done all funerals. He'd married everybody. You know, you know, Kidderville wouldn't be what it is today without my father. But he pitched his tent in the presence of God. And there he gleaned his strength. But he pitched his tent in the presence of man. And that's where he became his witness. The witness of God. You know, and that's much so very important for us to think about. You know, they, the words that I've used there are not my words. 
And they're not even words from people from the church. They, these are words from people that I met who don't even go to church. And they said they could put their watches to seeing my father wend his way down to the church every time it was open. Because he pitched his tent at Bethel, but at high so that they could see him. You know, and yes, we can be Christians in our own homes. Of course we can. Being a Christian means believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting him for our salvation. But who will know? Who will know? Who will see? And who will be affected? And the answer is no one. Yes, we can be Christians in our own home. But having done that, we haven't pitched our tent between Bethel and I. You know, and the worth of our public activity towards God is priceless. Priceless. For people to see who we are, to see what we do, making our way to this place. You know, I don't know if people can set their watches to any of us in, uh, in, in Estrad. I don't know whether they, today, perhaps they don't even uh, care what Christians do. But that's nothing to do with us. We still got to be faithful. We still got to show them that we mean business with God, and that there is a God, and that there is a heaven, and that there is a hell, and that there is a sacrifice of Christ. How will they know? How will they be affected? How will they see if we don't make our way to such a place as this? No one making our way to such a place as this in the sight of all that are around can only mean the enhancing of our own faith. You know, my prayer this morning is that we would see more of Abraham's type of faith in our own day and in our own lives. A type of faith that makes concessions. He went not knowing whether he was going. A type of faith that doesn't interpret but listens to the detail of a call and the type of faith that consecrates himself to the Lord in a way that the world can see how important God is to us. I wonder when people look at us, do they think God's important to them? You know, what was that, that phrase I used for my father? Um, if I can see it. He presented the village with a model of a changed life an example of a true worshipper and the challenge of a man of God. I remember I uh, preaching on Elisha many years ago and he was passing a house of a man and a woman and as he was passing back and forth the woman said let's make a room for the man of God. The man of God. You know, and I would pray with all my heart that as we go up and down uh, the Ron the Valley or wherever we find ourselves, that when people look at us, they will think, there's a man of God. God means so much to him. And he's doing the will of God. And here he is back to church again, worshipping him for another few moments. I pray that the Lord would bless us, strengthen us, strengthen our faith, help us to see the example of Abraham and use it in our lives for his honor and his glory. Amen.